first of all, we'd have like an overview of the city and the bustle and all of that. That's Karen Baer. She's a recruiter nowadays, but back in the early 90s, she was an NYU student studying drama. And if it was me, if I'm the lead, which I usually am in my head, it's, you know, a a young college student, like, hustling her way back from class. You know, heavy backpack. It's a warm spring day in New York City. It's a time when people are feeling good just to be out wandering simply because they can. And Karen was doing just that when she catches a handsome man's eye. I saw him walking towards me with a grin. Just his smile was so wide. And we locked eyes and I smiled back and he had me. I was hooked. I didn't know I was hooked. He knew I was hooked. The man introduced himself as David Hampton. He was well-dressed in his late 20s, slim and tall with his hair clipped short. He had a clipboard and he had a purpose. And I don't know what he saw to stop me or if I was one of many people and I just happened to stop. Um, But he's gregarious, engaging, warm. And the scene would have seemed like I was getting picked up, like it was a date or soon to be date. Karen was wearing a baseball cap for this movie that had just finished filming. It was called The Hard Way, starring Michael J. Fox. Someone at the college had been an extra and gave it to her. David pointed at it and told her he'd worked on the movie. He knew all about it and just was very clear about film and the process of filmmaking, but also sort of the grind and good for you for being part of it and and kind of wooed me in. He was gently walking with me and engaging me, peppering me with questions, multiple questions, but also understanding the question. And he fooled me into a conversation that I thought was (laughs) two-sided. But David wasn't just there to make friends. He had a pitch for Karen. And anybody living in New York for more than five minutes would know and understand that if someone approaches you with a clipboard and starts peppering you with compliments, it's usually because they want something, not because you look good in that dress, even if you do. He wanted money. I believe it was an investment for his project, his movie. And he just wasn't going to stop until he got some. As an art student, Karen was used to her friends asking her to invest in film projects. But this guy, well, she just met him. So I'm walking and he keeps coming towards me and he's gently pulling me along on his ride of why I need to give him this money. What was happening was I was being wooed. I was being charmed, and I liked it. I was happy for it. David knew what buttons to push to get Karen to fork over the cash. He hit her with the all-too-familiar line, Hey, you know us like-minded artists, we need to help support each other. David was clearly very persuasive because it worked. He just kind of, like, helped me give it to him. Like, you know, he had his clipboard. I think I had to slide that money right into his clip. Like, he knew not to touch me, and he knew not to take the money out of my hand. Like, the transaction had to be very purposeful from me. Karen emptied her pockets and gave him every dime she had. It was probably about $30, $35, $40, something like that. Which, by the way, 
I didn't have extra money. My parents, I worked while in school. Every dime went towards, you know, whatever extras I needed. Like, I had to pay for my own toothpaste. And once he had the money, abracadabra, poof, David vanished. It was like a magician. He kind of disappeared. I kind of kept walking and I thought, oh my God, you have been totally scammed. He just tricked you. But I didn't know for sure. And I walked into my dorm, this big high-rise building. All over the dorm is posters of him, his face. Scam artist, don't fall for it. Walk away. Tell security. I was like, holy Hannah, are you kidding me? Damn it, Karen. You've been duped by a man who had been scamming New York's elite for years. He might not have been in the movie business, but he liked to pretend he was. That's the art of a grifter, right? I'm Alzo Slade, and this is Cheat, the podcast where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, we meet Sidney Poitier's imaginary son. David Hampton grew up in upstate New York. And I mean, really upstate. We're talking like Buffalo. And as a young gay black man, David was desperate to escape home and become an artist in New York City, which he did in 1981. He wanted the nightlife. He wanted to be somebody special and somebody important. And he came of age of wanting to be somebody who was fabulous. That was Susan Tippograph. She was David's lawyer and eventual friend. At first, he crashed on a buddy's couch and worked at an ice cream shop. He got his high school equivalency diploma just before he turned 18. And for about a year, he bounced around between California, Connecticut, wound up back in Buffalo at one point, but he ended up in the city that had been calling him since he was young, New York. And very quickly, I suspect, learned that as a 17 or an 18-year-old black gay guy from Buffalo with only at best a high school diploma, he needed a better gig to be in the center of attention. It's a vibrant night outside of Studio 54, New York's hottest new club. People are lined up down the sidewalk, just hoping they can make it inside because in the blink of an eye, they could be rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous, maybe even getting noticed by some director. The 80s were a mixture of uh, nightclubs and nightlife and drugs, all kinds of things. David and his friend were waiting in line. He was excited because once you get inside, he knew he might bump into Andy Warhol, Liza Minnelli, Cher, Elton John, and... Even though the club was notoriously exclusive, David, he thought he'd be able to sweet-talk his way in. And once they got to the door... They were turned away. But, of course, a stubborn bouncer wasn't going to stop David. I don't think so. Because you know what David was thinking. He's like, you know who's always in this sort of place? The kids of celebrities. I should just be the son of somebody famous. David later told journalists 
that he'd considered three roles. He was going to be the son of Sammy Davis Jr., Harry Belafonte, or Sidney Portier. Now, Belafonte already had a son called David, so David quickly discarded that idea. Sammy Davis Jr. would have probably been in the places he was lying to get into, so that left him with only one choice. They came back and they saw the VIPs and they came back with a story that they were Sidney Portier's son. So David went back to the front of the line and confidently announced that he was the son of the Academy Award-winning actor Sidney Poitier. At the time, Poitier had just won an award for outstanding contributions to the world of entertainment at the Golden Globes. He was most known for movies like The Defiant Ones and Lilies in the Field, which he won an Oscar for. And the lie worked. David and his friend were swept in and treated like the celebrities they claimed they were. He later called it a magical moment. He'd gotten one quick taste of the celebrity fairy dust, and he just had to have more. That's after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. After his memorable night in Studio 54, David kept up his act of being Sidney Poitier's son. And he was good at it. Whenever he needed a free meal, he'd just walk into a restaurant. And I'm not talking about Red Lobster. These were high-end, expensive places. This guy would just say he's meeting his father. And then, when his fake dad failed to appear, I mean, Sidney Poitier is a very busy man after all, David would just apologize. The restaurants, they do how showbiz could be, so they pick up the bill. No questions asked. Everybody knew who Sidney Portier was, but you didn't really know that much about him. So who knew if, you know, in the early 1980s, if Sidney Portier had a son and nobody was going to question. David would also swan around town telling people that he was working in casting for his dad and could get them parts in his movies if they'd help him out. He would target young, wealthy college students and promise them all kinds of things. David Hampton befriended these kids and got to know them, manipulating them through knowing a friend of theirs from their high school years and knew everything about them and promised them parts in his father. And if you could see me, it's quotes of Cindy Poitier, his father, who was going to make a movie, he could guarantee them all parts. And these people were so flippin' excited 
That led him back to Connecticut College, where he was able to get his hands on his golden ticket, an address book full of famous people's phone numbers. And with that in hand, he'd call a big name up. Somebody like Calvin Klein, say he was Portier's son, and give him a sob story about how he'd been robbed or missed a flight and lost his luggage, and he'd ask to stay overnight and borrow some cash. The actor Gary Sinise gave him $10 and a place to stay. Wait a minute, these people are famous, and they're just giving this dude 10 bucks. So David had gotten what he wanted, kind of. He'd become a local celebrity around campuses and rub shoulders with the wealthy as Sidney Poitier's son. In total, David was able to fool at least a dozen of Manhattan's wealthiest families. And how did he do it? Well, everyone we spoke to for this episode regaled us with tales of his winning personality. You could see why people would open their homes to him. The people who are conned were very, very entertained by the person who conned them. And how often are people really, truly entertained? So it wouldn't presumably be that hard a scam to pull off. I mean, you can achieve a lot with some contacts and a good personality. Here on Cheat, we see a lot of people who exaggerate their identities or fake them. It really works if you're confident enough. I mean, the term con gets its name from confidence. And David Hampton, he had it. He was doing all of this without a real job or a place to call home. He got by by bending the rules, getting free restaurant meals, asking for small amounts of money, and jumping turnstiles. It's amazing. Sleeping in Central Park, and then the next time you're in a high-rise on the upper east or west side, talking about art and eating fine food. I mean, wow. That's a survivor's life. If he made a claim, David always knew enough to back it up. For example, when people asked him about his time at Harvard, he'd be able to name dorm buildings there and what they looked like. He could hold his own in any highbrow conversation. He was politically conscious, so you could have nuanced conversations with him about what was going on in the world. But there was one big fact that no amount of research could help him fake. Sidney Poitier, he didn't have a son. Today, his facade would never hold up. A quick search would tell you that Poitier was the proud father of six daughters in total. But remember, this was a world without the internet. Plus, New York high society worked just like it does today. It's all about who you knew, which is something David understood. Social media is filled with that now. It's unusual in the sense that it was unusual at the time. If he was alive today, you know, he would be like a social media influencer. Realistically, all it take is one slip up and David would be exposed, which came in October of 1983. He was going through his book of contacts and saw the number for Osborne Elliott, a former Newsweek editor and his wife Inger. He called him up, and this was his story. Hey, I'm a friend of your daughter. I'm supposed to meet my dad to start rehearsals for the film version of Dreamgirls. And unfortunately, I've been mugged. They took all my money. So, you think I can stay at your place tonight? 
So this was a classic David Hampton story. And on hearing this tale, Osborne told him to hop in a cab to the house and they'd look after him. Let him spend the night. They fed him. They spent the evening eating curry and chatting about the upcoming film. Before they went to bed, Osborne gave him 50 bucks, which would be enough to get David by until he needed somewhere new to stay. The next morning, everything changed. Inger went to wake him up, but found him in bed with another man. David claimed the stranger was the nephew of the publisher of Forbes magazine, Malcolm Forbes. They didn't buy it. They kicked him out. He got something from it, you know, that he shouldn't have taken, but the people who took him in got something as well. Now, wait a minute. See, this is when lack of decorum and hubris gets you into trouble. So you know you've lied your way into someone's home by taking advantage of their, I guess, benevolence. Okay, it worked. You got a place to sleep and some money. But no, he had to take it the extra mile, and sneak a lover into their house? So the following day, Inger called up her close friend, Leah Island. Turns out, David had been staying with Leah just a couple of days earlier, and she'd asked him to leave after she heard a scuffle in the early hours. They started to exchange stories, and they quickly worked out that David was a con artist. Two weeks later, David came out of the Waverly Theater and saw his picture in the New York Post. The Elliots had told their story to the press, and the article had hit the stands. So David thought it'd be a good idea to call Inger Elliot. Maybe he could persuade her that he hadn't really conned her, but it was Inger who was running a ruse of her own. She kept David on the phone so the police could arrest him. He pled guilty to attempted burglary in the second degree, which is a Class D felony, no violence. He was ordered banished from New York City, and he was ordered to pay restitution for the vast amounts of monies and things that he had stolen that amounted to $4,500. That was the total cost for everything. All the meals, all the nights out ended up costing less than $5,000. Less than $5,000. And he got banished from New York for less than five grand. And what about the people he conned? Was it about what he represented? Fame by association? Where were you before when this kid was living in the park? But because he's Sidney Poitier's son, a guy who doesn't need anything, right? In theory, then you provide, then you give opportunity. And so you think that David being banned from the city he loved in order to find the money he owed, would head somewhere new and start afresh. He did try, enrolling in college in Buffalo for a few weeks. But he couldn't resist trying his luck one more time in New York City. That's all he knows to do. He can't go to work and get a job. And so I think that's why. He didn't have another option. That's who he is. One night, he rented a limousine, but when the night was over, he refused to pay the driver, so he was arrested, again. This time around, it was prison for David. He was sentenced up to four years. In a perfect world, people wouldn't lie to each other or exploit each other, 
But we've never lived in a perfect world, and for thousands of years we haven't lived in a perfect world. And David shouldn't have lied to people and taken from people. That's a bad thing. But he paid a far greater price for what he did than was appropriate for what he actually did. David spent 21 months in a state prison and was released on October 6, 1986. While serving his sentence, David began writing a book about his life, a memoir of his remarkable grift and all the important people who fell for it. Sadly for David, someone else finished their version first. That's after the break. It's 1990, and a new play was taking Broadway by storm. It was a groundbreaking production, and it was just a hot piece of theater at the time when it was produced and how it came out. It was written by playwright John Guir and was called Six Degrees of Separation. It told the story of how a man charmed his way into New York's elite. Sound like someone we know, huh? Well... The writer John Guir was friends with the Elliots, the couple who had ultimately ended David's con, and they had told him about how he had come to their house pretending to be Sidney Poitier's son. In the play, the character, based on David Hampton, befriends a wealthy couple, staying with them and joining them for dinner. They're feeding them, letting them sleep there, bathe there, manipulate their children, and be manipulated themselves. The play was toying with the idea that we're all six steps away from knowing anyone else in the world. And it's not a casual way. It's not like you stood behind them in line at a grocery store. You are six degrees away. So then they were six degrees away from Sidney Poitier. But what people don't realize is you're six degrees away from the homeless. You're six degrees away from the forgotten kid. The critics loved it. And so, would our true leading man miss opening night? Of course not. Never. David was there to see this story, his story, unfold. Alongside him was George Rush, page six gossip columnist for the New York Post. I called him, and he was aware of this play already. And I asked him if he wanted to come with me to the opening, and he didn't hesitate. A nervous and excited David, who had been out of prison for around four years, made his way through the celebrities and Broadway stars to his seat. And as we made our way through the crowd to our seats, a number of audience members recognized him. And there was one lady who pointed to him and asked, are you him? And he was very excited that someone had recognized him, and he said, yes, I am. And the lights were dimmed, and this play unfolded, and it must have been a very surreal experience for David to see this dramatization of his story. So just imagine that. You're the one that tried to pull this con, and now it's being watched by thousands of people on a Broadway stage? Your life? How would you react? It was also obviously very exalting for him. Something that had started out just as a pedestrian 
criminal operation of a 19-year-old had been turned into this uh, big budget work of art. He just felt like no one in this audience would be here without him. The play wrapped up and George took David out to dinner to discuss what he thought. He was simultaneously flattered and furious, I would say. David got stuck on the details. He thought the play should have been a more accurate representation of real-life events rather than an artistic interpretation. David was focused on how it should have been you know, more about him, and he didn't like the actor. David didn't think he looked like him. In fact, thought he could have played the part better. But it wasn't just the choice of actor that bothered David. It was the fame and the success it brought everybody but him. The play won a Tony Award and was nominated for a Pulitzer. There was a movie made of it starring a young Will Smith and Stockard Channing. And all these achievements came off the back of his life. So David tried to take advantage in the only way he knew how. He really dined out on his newfound celebrity. Wherever possible, he would try to give people the impression that he was actually the star of the play and that he should get special treatment, free meals, admission to clubs, and so on. He gave interviews to the press, gatecrashed the producer's party, and began a campaign of harassment against Guir that included threatening phone calls. And then John Guir got an order of protection against him, and David was charged with harassing John Guir and actually went to trial and was acquitted. Clearly, David was very angry. I mean, he was convinced that John had stolen his story and he was entitled to the money he'd made from it. It really incensed him that this play became a hit and then a movie, and you know, he wanted a piece of it. There are other people who are criminals who have had books and movies and television series based on them. Some of them get paid. Some of them don't get paid. But, I mean, did he have a point? He was the subject of the play. And while John Guir made money from it, David ended up with nothing. And so Hampton decided to take a more official approach. Well, it's about time, David. He sued Guir and others for a piece of the play's profits to the tune of $100 million. I gave it a long, hard look and came up with a theory that John Guir had appropriated or misappropriated, more clearly, David Hampton's life. And the theory behind the lawsuit was that everybody's life inherently belongs to them, including their life story and that John Guerre had no right to exploit that. His lawyer, Richard Golub, argued that the playwright had stolen his life for personal profit. His main argument was that because the play used real incidents from David's life, he was entitled to compensation. David Hampton was not really a public figure. He only became a public figure through notoriety, public figure being some sort of exception about the right to exploit somebody's life story and I sued Lincoln Center and John Guare on that theory. However, the judge ruled against him, saying society's response to one whose labors are in violation of its penal laws is punishment, not reward. 
We asked John Greer for comment, but he declined. And for David's lawyer, Richard, the sticking point was around David's intentions. Well, I think that if you're somebody that's a movie star or you're in the public eye, then you are, in fact, a public figure. But David Hampton never set out in life to be a public figure. So hold on. Wait a minute. Was the cheater now being cheated out of his own life story? John Ware got rich off of his, David's life. And for thousands of years, writers and artists have achieved things, oftentimes mining the lives and stories of other people. So I don't have a problem with that. And I suspect and hope that John Guare has had a very, very comfortable life. And I think, at least in large part, it was due to his success in mining David's life for his story. I'll let history judge that. Even with all the grifting and conning and charming, David Hampton's life ended quietly. He never did really get the glamour he worked so hard for. In the 2000s, David became ill from AIDS-related complications, and he was moved into a medical center in Manhattan. This was to be David's final act. He passed away in 2003 at the age of 39. It wasn't the swan song he'd hoped for, as Susan found when she went to clear his studio apartment. I went with a friend. You know, we gathered up his things that we could give to other people in the who had little apartments there. I think we left stuff. I mean, it was a small room. I mean, he had a hot plate and a little refrigerator, and it was like a loft bed. You know, it was sad. The fabulous life he chased was reduced to a tiny room without a real oven. I'm sorry that he didn't survive. I'm sorry that he didn't get to tell his own story. And I'm happy that I had the opportunity to have him in my life. David Hampton. He was a complicated guy. A con man to many, a friend to others, an enemy to some, and a charmer to all. He only took small amounts of money. So was it really that bad? He wasn't going around stealing millions of dollars from a bank or conning an insurance company or uh, all the different shapes and sizes of flim-flam games that I've seen over the number of years I've practiced law. I mean, I think that he was a small-time thinker, you know? If he applied those skills to bigger fish, I'm sure that uh, he would have had a fish market. There are plenty of fraudsters stealing a lot more than he did. And most of the time, the people gave him the money willingly, $20, $30 at a time. And don't forget, the total amount David got when he was pretending to be Sidney Poitier's son was less than $5,000. Not that much in the grand scheme of things. So, can you blame him? I mean, there's also something to be said about the homes and lives he was working his way into. Really rich, really white people who were more than happy to give money and shelter him only because they believed him to be Sidney Poitier's son. And I'm not saying what he did was right, but it is interesting how the benevolence extends only through celebrity association. But when the lie was discovered, that charitable attitude ceased to exist. We've said it before on this podcast. Fame is a hell of a drug that can make you do stupid things. 
but we live in a world where fame is celebrated. David tried to cheat his way there, but in the end, it was other people who were celebrated for his life story. When he died, one of the articles, or more of the articles, quoted a guy named Peter Bedervian, who went on a date with David and got ripped off for $1,000 in cash and the bill for, you know, $400. And despite that, he said that it was the best date he had ever gone on. He wasn't saying, I was happy to get ripped off, and I think he called the police, and I think he prosecuted. But it said something about David's personality. He was funny. They had a great time, you know. And I had that without the con. He was just David Hampton. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And, of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the U.K., £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheap. The footage is really simple. It's like your traditional kind of X-Files alien gray lying on this table. It looks to be like four feet tall. It's got this kind of large bulbous head, big black kind of dead eyes. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by George McDonough. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Megan Dietrich. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola.